Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager, and this is a podcast about books, the people who love them, read them, and write them. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Winman, best-selling author who lives in London. After attending the Webber Douglas Academy of Dramatic Art, she had a career in theatre, film, and television, and she's the author of When God Was a Rabbit, A Year of Marvelous Ways, Tin Man, and her latest is called Still Life. Sarah Women, thanks for joining me over the airwaves today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. It's lovely speaking with you. Um, Still Life is an enormous and joyous book. How do you go about summarising this thing? <laughs> yeah, very badly. I'm not good at summarising this book. Um, there are so many ways of talking about it. So I usually start with it uh, spread over four decades. Begins in uh, wartime Tuscany and Florence with the chance meeting between an aging uh, art historian called Evelyn Skinner and a, a soldier and one-time globe maker Ulysses Temper. And it's a meeting that that sort of changes their lives and they remember each other from this particular one moment. And then the story divides. They go separate ways. The story goes back to uh, post-war London. And then it does come back and settle in Florence. Um, that's that's the sort of the start of it and the premise. But I would probably say that it's it's about found family. That's very important. It's about friendships. It's about um, the placement of beauty and art in life, and really just this what I would call the slow unfolding of life. That's it. There's mm. there's not. A, <laughs> putting my book down. There's not a great deal that goes on in this book, except the relationships and oh, the vividness I, of those relationships. That, that's um, that's remarkable of you to say, because I, 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 I struggle with um, the the amount of things that happen in this book. There's, <laughs> there's a flood, there's a war, there are relationships, there's you know, generations <laughs> of, of action. <laughs> Um, yeah, but do you know what? Maybe, maybe it's simply because because I'm not a plotter, mm. so I didn't start with things happening. You know, I didn't set out. I had one thing that I knew was going to happen in this story, and that was the flood. And that's because I came. It came to my attention in 2015, and it was going to be based around that. And of course, things change in a book. Yes. So the way the story unfolded, it seemed to unfold very naturally. That's probably what I mean. That it wasn't. There wasn't the the plot points or trying to turn things, you know, make a story go left or right. It was yes. just very. It was a very natural unfolding for me. The more I got into relationship with the book, yeah, and 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 in that, perhaps that's maybe why I feel this novel uh, is a little bit closer to life than a lot of novels that I read. I I, I really struck a chord with this novel, and it it, it filled me with a lot of joy. Um, Good. Tell me about the flood. And, and, and Florence in general, how, how did that come to be of interest? It came to, in, to be of interest because in t just probably the end of 2014, I'd done a very basic course in Renaissance art at the National Gallery. Very, very basic. I don't know much about art history. I'm, you know, I, I know what I like, but I wanted to do this uh, just for pleasure. And, and, and I, it was, it was in, it's just a very beautiful thing to do. And, Come 2015, Marvelous was going to come out, and I knew that I would probably be on the road with publicity for quite a while. So I decided to go to Florence 
January uh, for about 10 days so that I could think about what I'd learned previously and start looking at these paintings uh, in real life uh, rather than on a screen. So I ended up in Florence in January 2015, which was the most incredible time to go. The prices were very low in hotels. Um, no one was around. I remember walking into the academia and seeing this incredible statue of David, uh, Michelangelo's David, and no one was there. I mean, it was it wow. was extraordinary and very magical. And then I was in a restaurant, and it was just after lunch, and nobody else was there. And I looked at the walls uh, properly uh, as I'd finished lunch, and there were these photographs of Florence underwater. And I knew it was Florence. But actually, my head was saying, well, it's got to be Venice, because these streets were just, they were just awash. They were small rivers. And I talked to the owner, and he said, no, it was the flood of 1966, the big flood. And he brought me out some books to look at. And then he talked to me about these people called mud angels. Mud angels, um, yes. Predominantly young, yeah, pro- predominantly the young men and women who came to the city from all over the world to help clean up, to help clean up art, to help clean up the city itself. And then, of course, they, they did other things. They, they what, what I learned, they started to, to help older people. They delivered food. You know, and it was this incredible act of generosity. And, and I'm an incredible romantic, uh, I would say at heart, in my life. And I found that very romantic. You know, it was the decade of, of um, sort of a different kind of civil, I was going to say it is, was the decade of civil rights, but it was, there was just a sense of civil responsibility, maybe in a way that hadn't been around before. And yeah. for people to come and want to do this, you know, and that's that stayed with me. And then, of course, I was on the road with Marvelous, and then I had Tin Man, and but the story wouldn't go. So the story met me in that restaurant, and then I had many years to try and push it away because, quite frankly, it felt too overwhelming. I just didn't know where to start. Everyone, you know, lots of people have written about Florence. I wasn't an art historian. I, I didn't know a great deal, and I'd never written about a city that I didn't know well. All my other books have been about places that I do know quite well. Well, a, a great deal of the book is also set in Essex, which is where you grew up. Is that correct? No, not Essex. It's it's set in the um, East End of oh, London. The, so oh, oh, oh I Hatt- see. Okay. Yeah, I I was brought up. I mean, we we call it Essex. It was actually in the eastern suburb of London, so it was a suburb of London. Um, but this is actually more centralised of the East End of London. So it was in a place called Old Haggerston, which where it's set actually doesn't exist anymore. I talked a little bit in the book about sort of slum clearance, um, which it was just a lazy way of getting rid of, of um, people's homes, actually, and not mm. doing the renovations that was necessary. So that's what happened. Um, and it's a very beautiful part because it was a mix. The sort of the gentrification even back then was a kind of a mix, a mix between sort of a lower middle class, middle class and, and sort of working class, um, and beautiful kind of Gothic squares. So that's, that's what it was set. And it's, and it's important that it was set in a sort of a working class area because part of this novel is about opportunity and what people can do with opportunity and how people thrive with that kind of opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's a really well put way of... Phrasing that, I, 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 re- I remarked upon this in in this novel the way 
working class people uh, participate in life in in a way that just doesn't seem a possibility in 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 the twenty first century. Um, no. There's there's travel. There's um, there's uh, civic and community engagement in in ways that just lit my mind on fire. I I, I really warm to that. Um, how, how did you how did you get into that? I got into it because it was the antithesis of what was happening in life. Mm. You know that was it. And when I came to sit down to write this book, um, we just we'd not long had Brexit. We be, we've started to become quite an appalling country, actually, with our division and our rhetoric and this kind of right-wing politics that is seems to be happening all over the world, the world, I was going to say. Um, and whatever one wants to say about right-wing politics, it's it's not there for the, for the, for the populace. You know, it doesn't benefit the population. It benefits very few people. And, and it was just, you know, I'd, I've lived long enough now to see another, another way. You know, history repeats itself and it's quite circular as, as I write about in the book. So I just wanted to, I, I was sort of finding it unbearable to just be confronted with this perpetual narrative of hatred, which is ultimately what is going on. And so I made a decision. I said, you know, the books I, would, I was drawn to at the time was books that sort of made me laugh or you know, made me just feel joyous or, you know, was was almost like an adventure that took me out of the present. You know, that sort of almost old-fashioned kind of reading, that that's what I wanted. And so I thought, well, that's what's affecting me and that I need this lighting, uh, this lightness and I need this entertainment in order to recharge, in order to face what is happening outside and to do my part against what is happening outside. And so the decision was to make, to, to write a book tonally that was joyous and entertaining. Mm. So every time I sat down, even when I was feeling pretty heavy hearted, I would wait or I'd go for a walk and say, come on, let's, let's focus on a section that, <laughs> that, you know, made me laugh. Let's start there and then let's move into it again. Because I thought it was important. But I also thought at the end when I read over it, I'm not presenting anything that is unattainable in today's world. Yeah. I'm just bringing in empathy and kindness, which I think, um, you know, I'm full. I, I think this is a great political movement, a, new, a movement of empathy and kindness. And maybe one day that will be the backlash of all of this. Yeah. And, and, and the, the um, empathy and happened. kindness um, uh, in, in your novels, it, it flows from, from characters who would be, uh, today, outcasts and and probably back then were outcasts to a <laughs> degree as well. Uh, there's this wonderful, yeah, no, no, totally. Totally. there's this wonderful ensemble of of people you meet in this novel. Um, how do you approach writing such a, a a big cast, and and how do you keep it together? And and do you have a favourite among them? Um, I I I wanted to write an ensemble piece. I wanted to write what would be a theatrical ensemble piece because that's what I was attracted to. When I was writing it, I saw a play in London called Girl from the North Country that had been written by Connor McPherson with music and lyrics by Bob Dylan. And it was set um, in that beautiful trope, which I've used in a boarding house. 
But there was so many characters and I loved the interactions. And I thought, yeah, especially after Tin Man, which was a very small and a very um, kind of a, almost like a chamber piece. The novel. I wanted something that was very, very big, and I wanted, I wanted the theatricality. I wanted a lot of dialogue, um, and I wanted to present a lot of people and um, almost create. Well, I did. I wanted to create, as I said, found family, something a family that wasn't necessarily blood related. Mm. You know, that's always important in my book. You know, I want to break this kind of the construct of family. I want to break the construct of motherhood because they are constructs. And I want to present something that that uh, is more open to people who are not conventional or not so the societal norm. So I, I had these things in my head. Um, I didn't know. I mean, there were more characters, I have to say. And one was, one particular was cut, which I, I won't go into because I might use it. But, <laughs> but, mm. but once I got into it, so first up was Ulysses, which I didn't expect. Um, but I'm not surprised because my grandfather was in the eighth army and he was in North Africa and traveled to Sicily and then up through Italy. So, you know, I had a little bit of knowledge of that time. Um, and then Evelyn came very close on the heels of that due to a wonderful book called Florentine Art Under Fire by a man called Frederick Hart, who was positioned, uh, who was placed in Tuscany with the fifth army he was an art historian and was traveling around trying to find uh, the artworks that had been hidden in the villas so that the Germans wouldn't take them back to Germany. Um, and he, this is his book. And there was this great section where he's driving around in the Jeep while the bombs or the, the artillery is, is, is blasting overhead with, you know, the allies and the Germans. And they're still just driving through the, Tuscan hills as the bombs are falling and they come across this albergo and they think, oh, I'm going to have a spot of lunch as the bombs are falling. And they notice who's there on the deck having lunch. And they, and he says, you know, and there was a couple of English spinsters having lunch and a, you know, a French captain. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. What is this English spinsters having lunch, <laughs> you know, in the middle of the Tuscan hills, in the middle of wartime? Um, I love the word. I would never normally use the word spinster. It's, it's a ghastly word, but, but it's quite, um, specific to the time, but it also was there because I wanted to do a link later on with Forster, and that's a very common word in um, that, that he has used. So, you know, you, you start to build them up, and, then, and you also start to wonder what characters need and what other characters need. What do people need? Who do people need in order for them to be themselves and to show aspects of themselves? So I had Ulysses and I had um, Evelyn. Of course, I needed Captain, because Cap the captain was was part of Ulysses' um, deep love and uh, and education. Mm. So we had that, and then you know, then we take Ulysses back to London, and it's like, okay, so that's what he had. What is he going to need here? And it's it's that, as I said, they do form once once you're underway, and once you get back into another place, you you start to understand who inhabits this space. And, um, and and then it's just sort of the build from that. Of course, then we have Peg. What is that relationship going to be? And and it's just trial and error, really. You know, it's a process of selection, really, of, of, of how these characters are going to interact. Yes, and, and, and boy, do they. <laughs> um, yeah, no, they really, really do. 
Um, um, and I and I was attracted to that. I mean, I need to do a shout out to Tim Winton's book Cloud Street that I read a long, long time ago. You know, and I was deeply moved on all levels by this book about this because that was another big theatrical book. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting um, and and put, you know, and it, and that book stayed with me. Yes, it obviously stayed with me because I I had always. I think I'd probably declared I would like to do a version, my version, of, of the elements in that book that resonated with me. Um, and so maybe I have, maybe I have to some degree. But, but you know, there was so much grace in that book. And again, so much goodness and so much laughter. You know, those are the, those are the as I said, those are the elements that, that I wanted to, um, to hopefully um, instill. Ulysses plies a trade uh, after the war as a, Globe maker. Uh, how, how did yeah. you come across globe making? Are, are you big into globes? Well, I'm, I'm, I always love a globe. I have to be said. It has to be said. And then what happened was I found, I sometimes do a uh, write for a blog called Spitalfield's Life. Um, which is run by the gentle author. M- amazing blog. If anyone's interested in the East End of London, um, which you know, which I am, and one of the stories that came up was about a man called Peter Bellaby. This was quite a long time ago. So these things always say, you know, you never know how your interests then influence a novel. So a long time ago, I read this story about this man who wanted to um, find a globe for his dad's 80th birthday, and he couldn't. He couldn't find a handmade globe. You know, not the mass-produced one. He just wanted something that was was incredibly special. Mm. So he decided to make it himself. And that then went on to uh, an incredibly profitable business that he runs now called Bellaby & Co. And they make handmade globes, and they're stunning. And so I spent a little bit of, well, I spent an afternoon with him, and he went through maybe how somebody would make a globe in the 1950s um, and, and previous to that. And it's beautiful. It's it's absolutely beautiful to see. And I think this is the point, to see the earth in miniature and how absolutely stunning it is. And I suppose the image of that is very much about the preciousness of the earth and how Cressy later on, in, at the end of 1968, when the Apollo goes to, to do a, basically a recce of the moon to see when, where... Uh, a, a, a landing craft could actually land and they take some of the first, well, they did the crew. William Anders took the first color photograph of earth called Earthrise, yes. And, and maybe it is an age thing and maybe it is to do with climate change and maybe it is to do with the absolute devastation of what we're doing to this planet that I find it deeply moving now when I look at that picture mm. in a very different way when I'd seen it before. And so there is this link, there's link to this image of man being in space and looking into the darkness and seeing this incredible blue planet, which is just beautiful, but also vulnerable. And this is all we've got. And then we've got this globe maker who is so precise. It's as if he's holding the earth. And I think what we come to at this point is what I would call how these men inhabit the feminine space. Feminine space is not gender specific. Feminine space is an energy and it's about cherishing the earth and cherishing matter, cherishing women. So you have these two men 
who are very much that Cressy and Ulysses in this in this pensionium. They're bringing up a girl child as well, and that's a very important thing for me. That there is a link between how we treat the earth and how we treat women, and it ain't looking good at the moment. You know, certainly as we come out of lockdown, you know what what has happened. And again, what I'm writing is the antithesis of that. I'm writing about how this energy is so healing and that when men get on board with this energy, how the world could change. Mm. Many men do do live within this space and they do exalt it in that energy, which, which is part of them. But we need a lot more of that and we need a lot more of that by people in power. And unfortunately, we just don't have it right now. I think they need to read your books. <laughs> <laughs> um, and get a taste of that joy well, and that energy. I think they would throw it across the room and go, what is this? <laughs> well, you've, I don't uh, know. You've elicited a, a reaction at least. Um, I, I want to <sighs> ask, um, I'm running out of time, but um, there's there's so much to unpack. Um, and I, I, I yeah. need to know how E.M. Forster came to be in this novel. E.M. Forster came to be in this novel purely by a room with a view. Right. Um, yeah, it, I mean, that is one of the, the premise was, okay, what am I going to, if I move these people over? Well, th- I suppose what came first was actually reading room with a view. I've, I've read it many times. I probably, like a lot of people, might have come to the film first, that glorious, glorious film in uh, sort of the early mid-80s, um, which is a very different beast to the book. The book is very much about um, class as a lot of his books are, you know, who has the right to comment on art, you know, sacred versus the profane, uh, educated versus the not, all these things I'm, I'm interested in away from, uh, from this book. I'm just interested in life. Who has the right to comment on certain things? So I have this book and, and the woman who, uh, who runs the pensione is a cockney. And it's always made me wonder, what was this Cockney doing in Florence in 1901? You know, so that gave me the premise of, ah, we can, we can do that again. I can, these people can move there um, and they can set up a pensione because it's already been done. And actually, reading Forster's letters, it was actually true. So the Bertolini was the, was the, boarding house in a room with a view, but in real life it was called Pensione Simi and it was run by a Kelpney landlady. And if you look into Forster's letters, his volume one of letters uh, that was edited by uh, Furbank, so you, it's, it's very simple if anyone's interested. There's the sort of the 1901 to 1902 section of the letters and they're all about his travels in Italy. He was away for a year with his mother and, and he writes these letters back and the place sounds absolutely ghastly. It just sounds full of these awful English people who are just patronizing to the Italians and 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 yet he did go back there. So it must have got under his skin. Mm. And and I loved the idea. You know, right at the beginning I'm I'm writing of Evelyn and Evelyn would have been around in nineteen oh one because of her age. And then she then it's just one of those things that that I wrote that she met Forster. And and I love the idea of that. I love the idea of um, fictionalizing a real life character. I'd seen other people do it. I'd never done it. Um, and I thought, oh yeah, I'd love to do that. And I, I'd, and there was very little 
I, there's not much footage. I don't think there's any footage actually of Porter as a as a sort of a late teen, early twenties man, which he would have been around that time. Sorry, yeah, early twenties. So I thought, well, then I can do this. You know, all I've got really is his letters, mm. and he's very funny. He's very entertaining. And the more I, I could take parts of his letters, then it was as if my own voice could fill in the gap because they're very, he's, he's, I, I really liked, I really liked that young Forster a lot. Um, and then when I went to stay in Florence winter, uh, 2019, I was there um, for the whole of January and that whole 1901 section kind of just wrote itself. Wow. You know, the, the city was quiet. Mm. There was lots of ghosts you sort of imagine and um and i just had so much fun with it i had so much fun reading it <laughs> good good this is very lovely to hear this is it you know um, i i did want that you know and i'll give you one more compliment um uh openings of books uh very rarely you know to sort of stay with you for years and years um but the the opening of tin man is one of the best things yep. i've ever read um this, oh. this moment, uh, an act of defiance, a woman with a winning raffle ticket, her husband demands she takes the bottle of whiskey and she takes the yeah. reproduction of Van Gogh's sunflowers and it takes yeah. pride and place in her home and her life. Um, and yeah. it's, this, it's this beautiful moment of defiance um, and it's this yeah. uh, incredible uh, interaction between what you would call an ordinary person and uh, extraordinary art. And that to me gave yeah. a connection to this novel of, of unlikely characters um, in an extraordinary place and interacting with uh, a world of art. Um, yeah. Today, uh, great art seems to be commodified and rarefied to such a degree that it is um, not a tangible thing to to ordinary people like me. Uh, yeah. Do you feel that way? And and how how can someone like me have a better relationship with art? Uh, in in your opinion. Well, I'm the same as you. You know, I write about place people who I used to be. I I wasn't. I didn't grow up with art. Mm. You know, my act of defiance was suddenly to say that I'm not going to university. I'm going to drama school. And it was an act of defiance because nobody had ever done that. And I had never wanted to do that. I just heard of somebody else doing that. And so and what I'm writing about was how that changed my life. And so I don't think that art can change the world. I, I think that's probably putting it too, too much on a pedestal in a way. But I think it's, it's an antidote for so much. And the problem is, I don't know what's happening in Australia, but I know here is our arts curriculum is being decimated year after year after year. And what that does is it, it stops the ordinary child having access to um, art, to drama, to dance, to music. Now, this may not be sound important, but it's incredibly important for self-expression and for also for, for a time when maybe there'll be a post-work world for these people, for some of these people. Some jobs just won't be available. So how are people going to define themselves? 
how are people going to see themselves as more than their circumstance? How are they going to get pleasure in life? Because let's forget, let's not forget that, that, that art and pleasure should go hand in hand. This is as old as, as human beings, art. You know, as soon as man could tell stories, they were drawing on the walls as well. It is so inherent as a part of us. And I think what it has been, it's, it's, it's over the decades, it's been totally ambushed by the middle classes and up of making it this sort of secret language and this secret club that keeps out certain people. And that is absolutely wrong. That has to be embraced. And the more that we do not allow schools to teach this, then more and more people will be frightened about entering these enclaves because that's what it is. If you, if you haven't found this as a natural place to go when you were a child, you're being taken by your school to these places, it's very hard to break into these arenas as an adult. Because as an adult, we, we, get, we get too shameful. We feel we should know too many. We should know more. And so that's what needs to happen. And if you are an adult who didn't have access to that, then, then I think it's really, it's deep breath and going into a space and just looking. Mm. You don't need to know anything about the, part, about the art if we're talking about going into an art gallery. It's just about looking. And seeing what you notice, you don't have to talk to anybody about it. Just look at the painting that maybe makes you feel excited or makes you feel moved or the photograph or whatever is in that space or the sculpture and start to understand your own reaction because that's all it is. It's about your relationship. It's not about how much you know. And then, of course, if you start to find one thing, you might want to know what else that artist has done. Or you might not. It might not. It might just be one moment. But don't, because of a lack of schooling, or you know, a lack of a lack of curriculum, don't let that define your life. If you are curious, not everybody is, but if you really do feel, well, I don't know what all this is about, take a deep breath and just walk into a gallery. And don't. And and as I say, it's really important. You don't need to know anything. This is about a very private interaction between you. And music, you and a piece of art, you and, a, a, you know, and a film, you know, all of these things. It's not more than that. Don't get caught up in, as you say, in, in how things have become and the business side of it and and people dining out on everything they know. It's not, it's, it's, it's a visceral moment. Mm. And it, it's there for you to um, question, you know. That's mm. all it's there for, I think. And then you can build on that. Sarah, what will you write next? Do you know? No, I don't. I, you know, I, I'm not long from finishing probably the last edit. I was, I was only finishing the last, the US edit about three weeks ago. Wow. And the audio book. So wow. I feel, you know, and the English edit didn't properly, probably until November. So I'm, I'm still, I'm still, I don't know. I'm still a little bit tired. And the other thing is, uh, my ideas for story usually come when I'm not in this country. You know, wow. I, I find something, being an outsider, maybe not being able to speak the language and being a bit insecure and not knowing how things work, I find really, really creatively valuable. And I haven't done that. So I really have 
I have no idea. They're, you know, I'm not a writer who has lots of stories. I go from one and then the story, as you, as you rightly pointed out, the elements of Tin Man have moved on to still life. And so I'm not sure yet. I don't know. I don't know my book well enough, in a strange sort of way, to know all the elements that will then move on to the next book. Does the and space, I think doing more. Sorry, does the space in sorry. between um, one book and the next does that exhilarate you with curiosity, or does it fill you with fear, or both? Well, that's a very good question. I think before the last three books, it, it sort of filled me with fear because I just, I was quite hard on myself and I kept thinking, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? And something has happened after this book that I've sort of drawn a line under things and I'm not sure what it is. I think it's because I achieved in this book more than I hoped to in many ways and that, that I feel like it's okay if there's a long pause between what I write next don't feel a great I certainly don't feel any fear at the moment I am curious to know because I seriously I, there's, there is nothing there <laughs> you know there is nothing there and I I do need to do a lot more talking as I'm talking with you and questions to understand to understand why I wrote this book because obviously we don't sit down with all, all those questions haven't been answered we discover the book as we go along so hopefully that will make things clear or or not you know, I'm I'm okay at the moment, sitting with the unknown, which is usually a very frightening, <laughs> frightening place for me. But I feel okay with this one. Um, as I said, it hasn't come out yet, um, and I think I just need to. I think I need to enjoy this moment. I don't often. I put myself under a little bit too much pressure sometimes, and I really, really want to enjoy this moment because I feel that people are enjoying this book. Yes. And so I think it would be very healthy of me to sort of enjoy it with them. Yeah, and you made something, and you're putting it out there in this world that has been so cold and so closed. You've made something joyous. It, it should be a time yeah. of celebration. And um, next time we do should. this, I, I hope we can do it in person. I would love that. Oh, my goodness, I would love that. Wouldn't it be great if, if next year, wouldn't it be great if next year something happens and... We have we have that sort of sense of not necessarily freedom. I mean, I think freedom can be such a an internal thing, but but just that opportunity again to sort of meet up in a safe way for everybody, and um, it would just be awesome. I'm I'd so love that. Looking forward to it. And Sarah Winman, thank you very much for your time. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Still Life is published by Fourth Estate in Australia, and you can buy it and all of Sarah Women's novels at booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.